welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, July 26th, we're studying Psalm 110. Who is the Messiah? This psalm will give us a clear picture. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Reed Lessing. Dr. Lessing serves at Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota as Professor of Theology and Ministry, Director of the Pre-Seminary Program, and Director of the Center for Biblical Studies. He is also serving as Associate Pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Egan, Minnesota. Dr. Lessing, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good to be here, Tim. Pastor Lessing, Psalm 110 is this the most important psalm? It really is. Um, just because um, of its sheer um, number of quotes, allusions, references in the New Testament, there are actually 33 uh, times in the New Testament where authors are going to use this psalm, especially verses 1 and 4, uh, to speak to us about Jesus. Okay, so we are dealing with the. This is the most quoted, most alluded to psalm in the entire Psalter that shows up in the New Testament. Is that is it even more alluded than any other Old Testament passage, or is or there is there another Old Testament passage that I'm forgetting? Oh, that's a wonderful question, and um, I I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> My guess is <laughs> okay. it, it it almost has to be the most quoted, alluded to, reference Old Testament. A chapter in the New Testament. I can't think off the top of my head. Maybe you can. Uh, other oh. places, certainly Isaiah's for servant song yeah. would probably be theologically more important if we could put it that way. Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. Uh, but, but that's probably not alluded to or quoted as often as Psalm 110. Yeah, I, I think I think you're probably right. You you would know better than me. So if you can't think of it off on the top of your head, I don't know that I can come up with it either. And I I do think that that maybe surprises some readers of the scriptures today when we think of the very commonly used Old Testament passages, particularly in the Psalms. Psalm 23 often comes to mind, and it certainly is well loved. But in terms of New Testament usage, Psalm 110 really occupies that top spot. It really so does. As, so as we as we prepare to look at it today, what kind of context within the Psalter should we know as we look at Psalm 110? Well, the book of Psalms, as uh, maybe some of our listeners know, is broken into five different books, uh, obviously to mirror uh, and uh, allude to the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And um, so just to give us a, a bit of a running start, um, before you get into Psalm 1, I'm sorry, the first uh, book of the book of Psalms, which would be uh, Psalms 3 through 41, uh, 
we have an introduction to the book of Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2, uh, which would be the introduction to the whole book. And Psalm 1, of course, is a psalm that extols and celebrates God's word. And Psalm 2 uh, would be a psalm that extols and celebrates God's Messiah. So we're invited to read the psalms uh, through this dual lens of the beauty of God's word and the beauty of God's Messiah. Uh, so that certainly uh, would uh, help us understand that Psalm 110 isn't an outlier or maybe just one out of 150 psalms, uh, but certainly encompasses one of the major themes of the book, that is to say, God's chosen Davidic Messiah. So we're seeing that theme that we've seen throughout the book of Psalms. As you said, it's not an outlier, but certainly stands very prominently within it. By this time, in Psalm 110, we are now in book five of the Psalter. As you said, there are five. Mm -hmm. And that book starts at 107. Can you talk about the progression of the Psalms beginning in this fifth book? Right. So um, generally speaking, I'm going to accent the word generally, the book of Psalms moves historically through Israel's history, now, really beginning with uh, David um, and his reign, and then moving to um, the end of the Davidic Empire in uh, 587 BC, uh, and uh, the exile to Babylon in the 6th century BC, and then the return. Uh, so book five, again, I'm just going to use this term again, generally, uh, is going to be concerned with um, life after the exile. So <clears throat> Psalm 107, as you said, begins book five, and it begins, uh, give thanks to the Lord for his good as love endures forever. Um, and uh, if you read Psalm 107 with the idea of God uh, recollecting and um bringing his people back from exile, um, then it, it really makes a little bit more historical sense. Like verse three, uh, from the lands he gathered them, uh, from the east and south, from the north and the west. Um, so we are looking at uh, a section of the hymnal, right? This altar uh, that is going to accent God's faithfulness to the house of David, and uh, then the return from Babylon. So how does how does Psalm 110 fit into that? Cat, I mean, thinking particularly about the time after the exile, the return, and I mean, at that point, the Davidic line, the, kind of, that's kind of one of the questions of the exiles, what, what happened to the Davidic line? How does Psalm 110 fit into that? No, that's a wonderful question. Uh, if we would look at Psalm 89, uh, that would be... Uh, the last uh, maybe 20% of Psalm 89 is a lament over uh, the demise of the Davidic dynasty, uh, which is unspeakable, uh, inconceivable, uh, because God had promised in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 that uh, the house of David would exist forever. There would always be a Davidic son on Israel's throne. Uh, but yet, yet, <laughs> um, it would appear after uh, the exile that uh, that promise is null and void. Uh, and yet, <laughs> right, 
Um, we know from uh, the ending of Jeremiah 52, the ending of 2 Kings chapter 25, uh, that there is a Davidic heir whose name is Jehoiachin, uh, who goes by the name of Jeconiah, who goes by the name of Coniah, all right? Uh, so he, it's, he's kind of hard to place in the Bible because he's got three different names. Um, <laughs> at any rate, at the end of both of these books, Second Kings and Jeremiah, uh, a Babylonian king shows favor to Jehoiachin, um, and Jehoiachin then um, becomes uh, the ancestor of one of the primary uh, Persian governors who maybe our listeners have heard of, Zerubbabel, uh, who plays a part in the books of Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, and lo and behold, if you read Matthew's genealogy in Matthew 1, 1 to 17, you will see uh, Jehoiachin mentioned twice. So certainly an ancestor of Jesus. Uh, all of which is to say that uh, what appeared to be null and void with Babylon uh, was a preview of Good Friday, uh, where certainly the events there appeared to be null and void, but there was most certainly resurrection. And, and there's resurrection of the Davidic uh, dynasty uh, that we begin to taste and see uh, in uh, book five of the Psalter. And of course, 110 uh, would be the uh, primary psalm that announces that. So just imagine uh, you're um, aware of all of this, uh, and you're living in the exile, and you come across Psalm 110, and there's this hope for the Davidic dynasty, and you're saying, well, <laughs> wow, um, yeah. when's all this going to come to pass? And of course, uh, we know in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, the fulfillment of Psalm 110. Now, this psalm has the superscription, a psalm of David. Should we take that to mean that this is a, a psalm written by David? I take all of the Davidic superscriptions as authorial. <clears throat> that is to say, uh, it's not dedicated to David or in memory of David or <clears throat> copying David, but actually mm. written by David. Uh, and especially this psalm, it, it really doesn't make sense unless it actually has Davidic authorship. And this is something that Jesus affirms in the New Testament. Uh, Paul affirms this. Um, so we're on good ground that uh, the New Testament uh, says that this is more than just a, uh, a title that could be interpreted in different ways, but actually uh, one of the key elements of the psalm. So there are 73 Davidic psalms, and... Um, we would take all of those superscriptions to tell us that David was the author of 73 of them. Yeah, that, that's the way we've been taking them here. And I think particularly for Psalm 110 and the way that Jesus quotes it in the Gospels, mm -hmm. it, the only way that it can really make sense is if it is by David himself. Right, right. And, and I, I'll just accent this feature with one more comment. Um, it, it's easy for 
readers in English Bibles to see the book of Psalms and see these little superscriptions as maybe, you know, editorial uh, by the producers of the English translation are probably not important. And and that's unfortunate because, as you know, in, in the Hebrew Bible, these superscriptions are actually verses. Um, and... Uh, so, so it's important to to understand uh, that we have seventy three Davidic Psalms, and and one uh, expression that kind of you know stirs my soup a little bit here is when people are talking about Davidic Psalms and they say the psalmist said, and I want to break in and say no, That's right. <laughs> David said, uh, yes, but I'm a nice kind of humble Lutheran, so I don't do that. <laughs> oh, sorry. So we have a, a Psalm of David written by David. And I do appreciate that reminder about the superscriptions and the Psalms. Just as an example of this, if you're looking at an ESV, which is what I have in front of me, you, you'll see above Psalm 110 in a bold print, sit at my right hand. That's the editors of the ESV who added that. But where it says in all caps, a Psalm of David, that is actually a part of the text of God's word. And so that's what we're talking about here. That superscription, a Psalm of David, that's a part of the text of Psalm 110. And as you mentioned in the Hebrew text, that's actually verse one. And what we'll call verse one in our English translations, that's verse two usually. So Dr. Lessing, how would you arrange this Psalm? How, do we, how are we going to outline this Psalm, Psalm 110? So there are two um, oaths that God gives. Uh, the first one is in verse one. Uh, an oracle of Yahweh the Lord. Uh, and then in uh, verse 4, Yahweh swore. Uh, so on the continuum of divine revelation, would you have a, an oracle of Yahweh, a, an oracle of the Lord? Um, this is almost always reserved for prophetic literature. That's to say, you, you see this all over the place in Jeremiah and Amos and Isaiah, etc. Um, you, you'll only actually find this uh, this phrase, um, um Yahweh, an, an utterance and oracle of the Lord, twice in the Pentateuch. Uh, once when Isaac is spared in Genesis 22, uh, you have uh, an oracle of the Lord. And then in Numbers chapter 14, you have the same phrase, an oracle of the Lord. Um, uh, which would then uh, highlight both of these narratives in the Pentateuch. Uh, certainly Isaac being a foreshadowing of Jesus, uh, an oracle of the Lord. Uh, and then when uh, the Israelites think that they can um, still go into the promised land, when God says, no, you're going to wander around South Texas for 40 years, right? Um, <laughs> or something like that. Um, I thought I thought South Texas was the promised land. Yeah, well, right. yeah, I got news. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, God says, "No, you're going to wander around uh, for forty years, and this is an oracle of the Lord." All of which is to say, to to have this phrase in Psalm 110, verse one, uh, really shines the light on how important uh, the psalm is, um, and especially the first part of the psalm. So yeah, so I'll, I'll go back and I'll for, further and fully answer your question. Uh, one uh, to three would be uh, a section of the psalm that uh, extols and uh, tells us about 
the king, the Messiah, uh, being God himself. Verse 4 is the Messiah as a priest after the era of Melchizedek. And then verses 5, 6, and 7 would be the Messiah as a warrior. So Messiah is God, uh, he's a priest, and he is a warrior. Uh, what a uh, wonderful, um, fearful, uh, uh, awesome, just trying to think of all the adjectives I got, uh, description of who Jesus is. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty easy to, to outline again to accent verses one and four. Uh, and, and verse four then has uh, the Lord swore, uh, which, again, in this continuum of divine revelation, um, you, you don't have this very often yeah. outside of places like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Habakkuk, etc., well, you mentioned that the the phrase, the oracle of the Lord, thus says the Lord shows up in Genesis 22. And I think the Lord swears by himself in Genesis 22 as well. So it, you have that. It, you're right. No, that's a good point. So, I mean, maybe that, and that's a, that's a very clearly messianic text, a very central text within the Pentateuch and the book of Genesis. Oh, so here we've right. got another one. Right. I, I'm curious on, with, with this prophetic utterances that we've got here in Psalm 110 that, that marks it like cer certain prophetic texts. Within the book of Psalms, there are, are moments where, for example, in Psalm 51, where it gets attached to a particular moment in David's life. With Psalm 110, should we be trying to attach this to some point in David's life, or is he, I mean, almost speaking just as a prophet here? Yeah, just as a prophet. And there's this... Uh... Very curious and wonderful verse in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, where mm. Peter says on the day of Pentecost, David, therefore, being a prophet, and you think prophet, you know, king, warrior, singer, administrator, uh, but we normally don't think of David as a prophet. And, and yet, certainly we have uh, a prophecy in Psalm 110. Now, what uh, Peter is speaking to is, of course, Psalm 16, um, when Peter is uh, calling David a prophet in the second chapter of Acts. So uh, David is prophetic in Psalm 16 uh, and again in Psalm 110. Let's go ahead and look at the text of Psalm 110. We're reading again from the English Standard Version this morning. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments on the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That's Psalm 110. So, Dr. Lessing, verse 1 of this psalm is one of the verses that gets quoted so often in the New Testament. And we probably need to, to make sure we understand, because in the English, especially when you're just hearing the text, where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, we need to make sure we understand what's going on there. Help us with verse 1. 
Sure. As as our listeners perhaps open up their Bibles, they'll see L-O-R-D in all caps, uh, which they, they probably know. Uh, by this time, behind L-O-R-D in all caps would be the Hebrew name Yahweh. Um, and L-O-R-D with only a capital L in verse 1 um, would be the Hebrew word Adonai. Uh, so that we have... Um, Yahweh, I'm just going to speak here in terms of the Hebrew, uh, talking to David's Lord. Um, so the Yahweh uh, is uh, perhaps what we could use here would be Trinitarian categories, right? The Father says to uh, the Son, because the Son, uh, as Jesus explains this psalm, uh, would be um, the Messiah himself. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's that's how Jesus brings this verse up. Can you talk a little bit about the the way Jesus quotes this first in the New Testament? Right. The the whole argument within um, how Jesus uses this psalm uh, is in Holy Week, and people have peppered him with all kinds of questions, uh, and then Jesus uh, peppers the Pharisees and the scribes with this question. Um, and he says, how can uh, David uh, call the, um, the Messiah, right, um, my Lord? So who is this uh, Adonai uh, that um, we're speaking about? Um, and, of course, the, the interlocutors that Jesus is speaking to, right, his adversaries, uh, they don't have an answer. Um, so it is somewhat cryptic, right? Um, how could David um, call the Messiah his Lord? Unless, <laughs> see, and this is Jesus' point, unless this Lord um, is actually, um, well, I'll put it this way, the, the Messiah actually then is God, right? Mm. Um, and that's finally Jesus' whole point, that uh, uh, he is God. In the flesh, and and a, a good um, the first interpretation of Psalm 110 really makes this much more clear. I think in a Daniel's throne room vision in Daniel chapter seven, uh, where Daniel sees um, uh, the Ancient of Days, which is God Yahweh the Father, and then the Son of Man, uh, which would be analogous to my Lord, uh, and both are recipients of worship and praise and thanksgiving and honor and power, etc. Uh, so just as we have uh, Yahweh and Adonai on the same level, that is deity in Psalm 110, verse 1, we've got that same feature in Daniel's vision in chapter uh, 7, verses 13 through 15. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's even, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that out. So there's there's Old Testament use of Psalm 110 as well. Daniel 7 be another example. And, and in both of these places, we see the Trinitarian theology of the Old Testament. I suppose in terms of background to Psalm 110, it, it might be helpful to remember, for example, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Lord establishes this Davidic line as the as the king over over Israel, that's mm-hmm. in the background of Psalm 110, I would think. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I would just uh, say amen to all of that. Uh, sure. One, one sure. other piece to to this is, uh, generally speaking, within the Book of Psalms, you know, Psalm two is the yeah. enthronement of the Davidic king. The Lord said to my Lord, or, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about Psalm 110, but uh, <laughs> um, there's the divine voice, right, from the Father that says. Uh, you are my son today, I've become your father. And that's uh, Psalm right. 2, verse 7. And that is going to be uh, used when a Davidic king becomes, um, well, well, when a Davidic heir becomes a king, right? Hmm. Uh, and then Psalm 72 would be the Messiah's job description. Uh, and then Psalm 110 would be uh, finally the Messiah's victory. Uh, as God and, and priest and, and warrior, as, as the psalm ends, as you read it um, in verses 5, 6, and 7. So we can see a bit of a progression um, in the Psalter from the enthronement, the coronation, to the job description, to the final victory. Hmm. All right. And, and, and again, this Psalm 110, that's what Jesus is quoting to show to his opponents during Holy Week that David's son is also David's Lord, that the Messiah is both God and man at the same time. And, and what, a, what a wonderful mystery that is. So again, just to make sure we've got the, the speakers correct, because this is one of the challenges in the Psalms. The Lord, Yahweh, the Father, says to my Lord, the Son, Jesus, then what he says here, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What is what is the father saying to the son? Certainly to be at the right hand uh, in the Old Testament is a place of favor. Um, and uh, to have your enemies under your feet, uh, certainly if, if our listeners can envision that, if you're uh, you're actually standing on the neck of someone, right? Mm. Uh, you, you've got all the power and authority and victory over that person. Um, so that uh, it really is speaking to the Messiah's final victory, right? And, and we know that the Messiah, the my Lord, Jesus, doesn't sit at Yahweh or the Lord's right hand uh, until the ascension, right? Um, so this is exactly where Jesus is right now, at the Father's right hand, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed. Um, and, and we're still waiting, right, until I make your enemies your footstool. Mm. Um, so we're in this between time between the Messiah sitting at the Father's right hand and the Messiah's final victory. So Psalm 110, we have the ascension of our Lord, also the return of our Lord, both in view in that first verse. We're going to pick up more of this psalm on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talk to, talking with Dr. Lessing this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, July 26th. We're studying Psalm 110 with the Reverend Dr. Reed Lessing. He serves at Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota as Professor of Theology and Ministry, Director of the Pre-Seminary Program, and Director of the Center for Biblical Studies. He also serves the Saints at Trinity Lutheran Church in Egan, Minnesota as Associate Pastor. Dr. Lessing, prior to the break, we were looking at the first verse of Psalm 110, where the Father says to the Son, "'Sit at my right hand,' It, it's striking that in the very last verse of Psalm 109, the right hand shows up again. What's the what's the connection there? Right, Psalm 109 would be a uh, psalm in which David is uh, rejected by uh, someone very close to him, um, a, a friend, uh, a comrade, uh, an associate, uh, and what we see then in Psalm 109 would be a a preview of Jesus being um, betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Uh, In fact, this is exactly how uh, Acts chapter 1 takes it. Um, So this is a a psalm in which the Messiah then, the Messiah, maybe small m, is betrayed, that's David, Mm. and then the Messiah uppercase M, Jesus, is betrayed in a much more drastic and horrific sense, uh, 30 pieces of silver by Judas Iscariot. Uh, So that's pretty much the context and the uh, content of Psalm 109. Uh, But after the betrayal, um, what we have at the end, like verse 30, uh, David saying that he's giving thanks to the Lord and praising Him in the midst of the throng, um, and then we have we go from a first person, right, David speaking, to now the um, a third person voice, which we could envision as being God the Father Himself, right? For He stands at the right hand of the needy one. Uh, so we would to make sense of all this, we really need to accent the pivot from first person, my mouth, I will praise him. That's the Messiah, uh, lowercase, uppercase, right, M, um, to um, this uh, third person speaking about the Messiah. Uh, and so he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those uh, who condemn his soul to death. Um, so you can see that the the right-hand motif moves uh, from 109 to 110, and in 109, 31, uh, the Messiah, the, the rejected yet vindicated Messiah, 
is going to come to the aid of needy people and those who are under condemnation even unto death, uh, which is a great link, obviously, between the two Psalms. So, I mean, this the fact then that Jesus sits at God's right hand, and he does so on behalf of the the needy one, to use that language from Psalm 109, this is a great comfort to us as, as Christians then, right? Oh, it is, it is. And as, um, as high priest, of course, one of the roles of a high priest is to intercede for the people. Uh, and we know that uh, Christ himself is the, the great interceder and, and sister. Uh, and we have that in Romans 8.34. Um, so yes, uh, already, uh, you know, we haven't spent a whole lot of time in verse one of Psalm 110. And what are we finding out? There's, you know, multiple gospel uh, truths here for us. And here we're accenting that when we're alone and against uh, enemies that are overpowering us, and usually these enemies would be guilt or worry or shame or loneliness, uh, loss, etc. Uh, we are not, a, we may be lonely, but we're not alone. <laughs> we have someone uh, who's at the Father's right hand uh, interceding for us, praying for us. Uh, the, and because often, this is Paul again, Romans say, we don't know how to pray. I know how to pray. Uh, thank God Jesus knows how to pray for us. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and even as, as you're talking, we're starting to see the connection that Psalm 110 makes, which it, it takes the one who is the king and also says that he is a priest. Now, that that move really comes particularly in verse 4. I, I want to get there, but before I before we do, I just want to make sure we, we cover verses 2 and 3, where we're still talking about, it seems, the son being king. Give us the highlights in, of the reign of the Messiah that's in verses 2 and 3. Certainly the, the whole idea in verse 2 of scepter, right? A mighty scepter um, that speaks to the Messiah's uh, royal kingly rule. Um, and again, we have enemies in verse 1. We have enemies in verse 2. Um, and then we're going to meet more enemies, right? Uh, in 5, 6, and 7. Um, probably at verse 3 uh, would indicate that uh, the Messiah is not alone, right? He's hmm. He has uh, people who are uh, offering themselves, right? Uh, as we could envision as part of the Messianic army. Uh, we certainly have that in spades in Revelation 19, where the rider on the white horse is followed by the whole army of people, right, on white horses. Uh, so that that might be a, a, a nice inter uh, testament, intertestamental link from o- Old Testament to New Testament to further explain this. Uh, we also have this warfare imagery in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, where we put on all of this uh, armor uh, so that we can stand in the day of battle. Uh, so I would take verse 3 along those lines of Revelation 19 and Ephesians 6. Um, yeah. So then that brings us to verse 4, which, as you said, we have another important marker here. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. 
you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that we've talked a little bit about what it means that the Lord swears and some of the important texts that shows up. The actual thing that the Lord swears, though, about being a priest, we've started to touch on that. Maybe we should we should start here in verse four by talking about Melchizedek. Who's that? Oh, my gosh. How many times as a pastor of people <laughs> ask you that question, right? Um, that he comes and goes rather quickly in Genesis chapter 14, right? Uh, this would be Abraham, who, again, we, we don't envision Abraham as being a successful military leader, uh, just as we don't envision David being a prophet at yet. Uh, David is a prophet, and Abraham is a successful uh, military leader as he defeats uh, some kings. Um, and when he is uh, leaving um, the uh, scene of battle, right, um, it says in verse 17 of Genesis 14 uh, that um, Abraham returns from the defeat of the kings, etc. Uh, and then in verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed them and sat. And then we have a blessing. And then Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek. And that's that. Um, so we, we could start with maybe a couple of pieces here. Um Melchizedek, um, just his name, um, means uh, righteous king. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, Jesus is the righteous king. We have that uh, very beautifully portrayed for us in Jeremiah 23, verse 6, uh, where it says, the Lord is our righteousness. Uh, Melchizedek is, is a righteous king. And he's from Salem, Salem, which would be another term for Jerusalem, uh, which is the same word in Hebrew as uh, shalom or peace. So he's a king of peace, a king of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and again, he, then he's called a priest of God Most High. Uh, so in, in one verse in Genesis 14, 18, we get just a whole truckload of uh, biblical truth. Um, bound up in Melchizedek. And, and one more uh, point to this, then I'll get it back to you, Tim, um, is in Hebrews chapter 7, um, we are told that uh, Jesus, the Son of God, um, is like Melchizedek. Uh, more specifically, looking at the ESV, Hebrews 7, verse 3, he, uh, he resembles the Son of God. All right? So, so Melchizedek is not um, Jesus before the days of his flesh. Um, the Melchizedek is not the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, if he was, then the Hebrew author would not say he resembles, or he's like. Um, so Melchizedek uh, foreshadows, is a, a type of, uh, a pattern of Jesus, which we see a lot of these in the Old Testament. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up the book of Hebrews because I, I think the the writer of Hebrews is the one who helps us most with this verse, with Psalm 110 verse four, about what it means. Help us with with more of these connections. You've established that we know who Melchizedek is 
from Genesis 14 in the historical narrative. What What's being said here in Psalm 110? How does the writer of Hebrews help us to understand this? So Hebrews has as its overall goal to demonstrate that Jesus is greater and better than everything, everyone, and every event in the Old Testament. He's not different. The the Jesus event isn't, oh, this is something out of the blue. No, it's not. Uh, Jesus is greater and better, but not different from the Old Testament. You can't understand Jesus, right, apart from the Old Testament. Uh, So that um, the Hebrew writer is trying to demonstrate that as Jesus is greater and better than everything, everyone, and every event in the Old Testament, he also has to be a better priest. Uh, And how do you become a better priest? Uh, Well, you don't trace your uh, ancestry back through Aaron uh, or the Levitical priesthood, because the argument in Hebrews is that the Levitical priesthood needs to offer up sacrifices um, you know, daily, yearly. Um, and Jesus, if he's part of the Levitical priesthood connected to Aaron, would then have to offer himself up daily, weekly, monthly, uh, yearly. Uh, and the big argument, especially in chapter 9 of Hebrews, is Jesus offered himself up for us all once, one time, one sacrifice, complete, done, finished. That's all we need. Uh, to make that argument that Jesus now is a better priest than Aaron in the Levitical priesthood, the author reaches back to Genesis 14 uh, and says Jesus is a priest after order of Melchizedek. Um, And what do we know about Melchizedek? We know that, as I was looking at this earlier in Genesis 14, that Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. And and this is a strange argument, but this is what we have in Hebrews 7. He says that Levi, uh, being uh, the great-grandson of Abraham, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob through Leah um, had uh, Levi. So this is his great-grandson. The argument is that the great-grandson, through the The loins of Abraham also paid a tenth to Melchizedek. And it's clear that if you pay a tenth, the tithe to someone, you're lesser, that person is greater. Now, I know that this is maybe confusing (laughs) to our listeners, um, but if you would uh, maybe pause after the program and and, uh, uh, read the first half of Hebrews 7, uh, then, you know, you would see the argument. Uh, Levi uh, paid the tithe to Melchizedek, is the argument, and Melchizedek uh, certainly receiving the tithe is is greater and better, hence Jesus is the greater and better priest. Mm, right, yeah, it, it is It is a, an interesting argument that he makes there in Hebrews 7, but, but that is the argument that he makes. And I, I think perhaps with that historical argument, that makes us scratch our heads a little bit. But again, that is the Word of God. But the parts there in Hebrews 7 that I do think are a little bit clearer that, that make a little more sense to us, the other thing he says is what establishes Jesus as a better high priest is also his resurrection from the dead. And the fact that it's the Lord swearing it, it's a it's a promise that he makes 
as opposed to, say, the law that established the Levitical priesthood. Right. No, that's a great point. And and the argument is uh, earlier in chapter seven of Hebrews uh, that Melchizedek um, is verse three without father or mother genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life. See, um, so just as Melchizedek um, has no end of life, uh, so Jesus has uh, conquered death in the grave. Uh, and the Hebrew writer says at the end of chapter seven that, that Jesus' life is indestructible, uh, never to die again. And we say, well, wait a minute, the Genesis chapter 14 doesn't go into all of that, right? Without father, without mother, without genealogy, etc. Uh, and so what we know of, and I don't want to go too far off the deep end here, um, but within the, the life and times of the author who wrote Hebrews, um, one method of interpreting the Old Testament would be along these lines. If it doesn't mention it, um, then um, you can actually interpret it that way. In other words, if I don't say Melchizedek had a father or mother or genealogy or beginning of days or end of life, right? Then if, if that's not anywhere in the text, which it isn't, then I can say, interpret it, oh, um, that must be Melchizedek. Um, so it's, a, again, a bit of a strange way of interpreting the Old Testament, but some people in New Testament times looked at some Old Testament text and said, if, if, if you're reading about Reed Lessing, <laughs> and he doesn't say he was ever born, uh, then uh, I guess he wasn't ever born, <laughs> see? Um, and so that's the argument in chapter 7, verse 3. Hmm. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more about the the comfort then of, of this fact that Jesus is this priest forever. And and here, one of the things that I like to think about when it comes to the ascension of our Lord, as we've said, this, is, this psalm does speak of Jesus' ascension. You know, when Jesus quoted from Psalm 110 to his opponents, he was making the point to them that the son of man is the son of God. He, he was emphasizing his divinity. Uh, one of the comforts I find in the ascension of our Lord is, is not only that Jesus as God is at the right hand of the father, but Jesus as a man is also at the right hand, that my brother is the one who's sitting there reigning over all things and interceding for me. The fact that, that he's my brother as, I mean, the writer of Hebrews gets into this too. He becomes a sympathetic high priest for me. He knows what it's like. He can intercede for me in the best ways. There's, again, real comfort in this truth. Oh, right. And, you know, in chapter five of Hebrews is where you've got uh, that whole uh, promise that he is able to sympathize with us. Um, and again, in chapter five of Hebrews, you, you've got um, Psalm 110 verse uh for, uh, quoted for us. Uh, no, it's a wonderful truth. Um, and someone who uh, still bears our, our flesh and uh, understands uh, all the changes and chances and ups and downs and pains and sorrows of this earthly life. He understands. There, there's, and I'll just put it this way, maybe to give our listeners a, another uh, view of this. But when people come along and you describe maybe a, a tragic event in your life and they say, oh, I understand, I get it. 
you know, there's usually most of us say, well, no, you really don't, not completely. So when people share their sorrows with me, I, I say, I, I understand to a point. Uh, I, I get it to a point, but not completely. Jesus doesn't speak that way, <laughs> right? He doesn't say, well, kind of, sort of, I get, no, no. He says, I understand completely what you are going through. Um, so, yes, what a, a, a great comfort and uh, and uh, promise this is. So in Psalm 110, we've seen the Messiah reigning as king, as God. We've seen him as our priest. And then, as you said, the last part of this psalm tells us about his, his he's a warrior. He's won this amazing victory. And in terms that maybe seem a little bit shocking to us, particularly in verse 6, where it speaks about filling the nations with corpses, that sounds pretty Pretty violent. What do we what do we see in these last three verses of Psalm 110? There's a great connection with um, the first messianic prediction in the Bible, um, and and let's track that a little bit as we look at uh, verses five and six in Psalm 110. Uh, we we see the word crush, crush, uh, two times uh, in verse five and and verse six. Uh, in another messianic prediction, uh, in Numbers twenty four seventeen, uh, the Messiah, the 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 one who is uh, coming out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and he will crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Crush. Uh, then that takes us back to, of course, as I said, the first. Messianic prediction in Genesis 3.15, uh, that uh, the offspring of the woman, a different word used in, in the Hebrew of Genesis 3.15, but same idea, uh, that he will uh, crush uh, the head of the serpent. And the serpent himself, of course, will strike uh, this offspring's heel. Um, so the idea being, uh, is we... Uh, track this idea of victory over enemies that uh, is is clearly in play, right, already in verse 1 of Psalm 110, but certainly in the last three verses, as you said, Tim, as we track this idea backwards through Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24 back to the first prediction, uh, we would want to accent the idea that within the crushing and the 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 battle, uh, the Messiah himself is also crushed. So he is a wounded victor. Now you don't get that obviously in Psalm 110, but you certainly get that in Genesis 3:15. He's a wounded victor, um, and, and but he is a victor over every enemy. And and finally, uh, the arch enemy of God's people, and really of all people would be uh, the serpent, Satan, uh, the devil, and the accuser. Hmm. So, I mean, talking about the wounded victor makes me think of of the book of Revelation, where it's the lamb who was slain, who is reigning on the throne of God. You've, you've got the wounded victor there. And then this, you know, this idea of, of crushing and how that connects to the, the first promise of the gospel there in Genesis chapter three, and, and thinking forward to how this psalm you know is pointing us not only to the resurrection and ascension of Christ, but also his his return. I'm reminded as well of of what Paul says to the church in Rome in, in the last chapter of Romans, where he says, The God of peace 
will soon crush Satan under your feet. That that this psalm points us to the hope that we have right now because our Lord is risen and ascended, but also to the hope that we have that is still coming. You mentioned that at the the outset that there's the the now and the not yet, and, and I think we we see that here toward the end of the psalm as well. No, yeah, you're right. That's a wonderful comment. Uh, on the, and I'll just accent a few more pieces of this wounded victor in the book of Revelation, right? He's called the lion and the lamb. You've already picked up the butchered, slaughtered lamb who is also riding on the white horse. Uh, I would say, though I've not really pursued this in great depth, but this wounded victor that we have in Genesis 3.15 really is going to play itself out in a lot of uh, different texts in in both testaments. Um, For example, I'll just give you uh, our our listeners one example. Uh, The Messiah in uh, Isaiah 1 to 39 is a victorious Messiah. Uh, You can read about that, especially in chapter 11 of Isaiah verses 1 through 9. But then when you turn the page to chapter 40 through 55, he's a suffering servant. So which is he? Is he a a great victor uh, over his enemies, 1 through 39, or is he the suffering servant of 40 to 55? And the answer obviously is yes, he's both. You don't have the real Jesus unless you've got both. Uh, and we tend to probably fall off the side of the road one way or the other sometimes, right, um, in our own uh, walk with Christ. Um, I could go on, but I, I hope I give the listeners a little flavor for how important this is, that he's the sure. victor in uh, Psalm 110, but we have a whole lot of wounding and rejection, right, already, as we mentioned this briefly in Psalm 109. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And well, that's the wonderful thing about reading all the scriptures. And and as you taught me to not only read the scriptures, but to reread the scriptures and, and to keep hearing the word of God, to to seeing how the the whole of God's word points us to Christ and all that he's done in his suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and in his glorious return for which we wait. The Reverend Dr. Reed Lessing serves at Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota as professor of theology and ministry, director of the pre-seminary program, and director of the Center for Biblical Studies. He's also associate pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Egan, Minnesota. Dr. Lessing, thanks for being our guest today. It helps with Psalm 110. My pleasure, Tim. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. What a wonderful psalm, Psalm 110, that presents to us our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is God. He is our high priest, and he is victorious over our enemies. In him, that victory is ours, and we await his return with great joy. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.